Please get out your Bible and turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Today we're going to be in verses 6 and 7. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. And what I would like to do for us just quickly is I'm going to pray for us one more time that God would open up our eyes and hearts to his word, that it would be the spirit that is stirring in our hearts. Father, I ask that your Holy Spirit would illuminate the truth to us this morning. God, that we would walk away here with a greater love for you and you alone, that we would see just how amazing and awesome you are. That we would Put the right things in front of us instead of trivial things. That you would encourage the weary heart this morning. That you would challenge the disobedient son or daughter. And that you would soften the hard heart. Pray this in Jesus' name, who is worthy to be praised. Amen. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7 say this. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Now, if you have been here at all, The past few weeks, what we've been doing is we've been going through the book of Philippians. We have seen Paul, the Apostle Paul, writing this letter to the church in Philippi. This is a Roman town which has some serious significance and weight to it. And what has happened is Paul, Silas, and Timothy went early on in their missionary travels to um, to plant churches, and they so happen to be traveling through Philippi, and what happens is they go to this little prayer meeting put on by this businesswoman named Lydia. She becomes a faithful follower of Christ, invites them over to her house. On their way to her house, what happens? A, a po- demon-possessed slave girl starts annoying Paul. Paul rebukes the spirit. It's sent out of him. Her slave masters didn't really appreciate that much because that was their source of income, and they throw Paul and Silas into prison. While in prison, they see the conversion of the Philippian jailer. And that's this church. (laughs) You have a religious businesswoman on one side in your membership role and a jailer, a Roman jailer, on the other side in this church membership role. And so what Paul is doing is he's in prison. The Philippians hear about this. They send him, Epaphrodites, one of their leaders, to give him gifts, to let Paul know, Paul, we are still with you. This takes place a few years after Paul's imprisonment here and establishing this church. And so Paul writes this letter 
to let the Philippians know he's doing okay. Paul writes this letter to fill the Philippians in on the Christian life. He sees some warnings, and so he says, I'm going to pray for unity. I've been praying for unity for you all. And what we have been noticing Paul doing is calling this church to a Christ-like unity that would put to shame or defeat their enemies, as he tells us later in chapter 1. He's calling this church to live as citizens of heaven. This is significant because as citizens of Rome, this was a very proud thing that people had in their hearts. I'm a citizen of Rome. And so, Paul, being a citizen of Rome, warns them, hey, look, you don't want to count this as your citizenship. You must first and foremost be citizens of heaven. You must be unified on this very important matter. And so as Paul is now teaching them what it looks like to be unified, he shares with them in chapter 2 one of the most amazing few verses that Paul pens. Some think this is a hymn, some don't. Whether it is a hymn or whether it's not a hymn that Paul is quoting here, what we do know is that the significance of these verses are immense. Last week we looked at chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. I couldn't help while I was preparing for verses 12 through 18 to go back and think verses 6 through 11 may be the most important verses that Paul is saying here in the book of Philippians. This is the glue that holds this whole book together. And so last week, as we talked about what it looks like to humbly serve one another as Christ served us, I just started thinking it would be a total shame if all we walked away with is, I'm just supposed to be a nice person to other Christians. Instead of realizing what Paul is actually doing here. The significance of these verses are incredible. Have you ever read something on Facebook, on Twitter, on the news, a book, a letter that you may have received that you just have to go back and reread it because it blows you away? Whether it's good news, bad news, or it just catches your attention, you can't help but just go back to it and reread it because for whatever reason it has caught your attention, this is what these verses should do for us. So this should catch our attention. Why? Because in these verses, specifically these two verses that we're looking at, Paul is making the bold claim that God is born in the likeness of men. And if our hearts could just grasp a little bit of the significance of that, would change everything. It would change how we live. It would change how we think. It would change how we respond to persecution and situations that we may not like. 
What Paul is saying here is God is born in the likeness of men. <laughs> this is radically different than any other religion that man has created. That God himself serves mankind by being born in the likeness of men. There was a, an academic scholar who said, as, as he was studying the scriptures and having to wrestle with this idea that Jesus is God, he had to come to three conclusions. Either Jesus is a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's actually the Lord who he claims to be. And so this is what we first need to do as we come to who, though he was in the form of God, what we need to ask ourselves is, who is Jesus? Because if Jesus truly is God, then this changes everything for us. And so, who is Jesus? Well, in the beginning of John, chapter 1, we see in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Our call to worship this morning, the Word became flesh. Who is John talking about there? John is talking about Jesus. Paul in Colossians goes on to tell us that Jesus is the invisible God made visible to us. As you read through the Gospel of John, you will notice multiple times when the Pharisees pick up stones to stone Jesus. Why? Because they thought Jesus was blaspheming God. Why did they think Jesus was blaspheming God? Because Jesus was making these radical claims like, before Abraham was, I am. Do you see what's happening here? In Jesus' life, Jesus may never be caught saying that I'm the Messiah explicitly, but we do see him making these claims of saying, before Abraham was, I am. And the Pharisees knew exactly what Jesus was claiming to be. Jesus was claiming to be equal with God the Father. And so, then if we are putting all of this together, then Jesus either has to be a liar, a lunatic, or actually very truthful, the Lord. How can we better understand this? Well, since... Jesus is God. I, I, I believe that what the scripture is telling us is true, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and this Word became flesh, and that if Jesus is the invisible God, made visible to us by being born in the likeness of flesh, that means that Jesus has to be God. You see, Before time itself began, as God was creating all things, and it comes to the pinnacle of mankind, God says, let us create man in our image and likeness. Now, some people will say that God was talking to the angels, but <coughs> that can't be so, because none of us look like angels. You see, angels aren't the, the little babies, the little chubby babies in your grandma's bathroom wallpaper. It's not what angels look like. 
If you want to know what angels look like, then go to Ezekiel, and you'll see that one side of their face is a lion, another side of their face is an ox, another side of their face is an eagle, another side of their face is the face of a man. Their waist has fire on it. I don't know. I don't see too many people like that walking around. And so God could not have been talking about angels. He was not talking to angels saying, let us create man in God's image. No, he must have been talking to who? It must have been a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit conversation that is going on. We see that as Moses is on Mount Sinai, he asks to see God himself. And he says, God says, you cannot see my front side because that would destroy you. But hide behind this rock and you can see my backside. Jesus is God. God. God came down. Jesus was in the form of God. Is this how you see Jesus? Do you see Jesus as fully God? Or do you see Jesus just as a good moral teacher and some good principles to live by? Because if we see Jesus as one, then we will just want to live nice, tidy, selfish lives, trying to be the best people that we can possibly be. But if we see Jesus as God, then we will want to radically live for him, whether in life or death. You see, this changes everything about who we are as people. What does Jesus do? Well, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What does this mean? Does this mean that Jesus empties himself of complete his complete divinity? That he just strips himself? No. This means that Jesus did not use any of his power for his own advantage. Paul kind of lets us in a little bit on, in this in 2 Corinthians as he tells us, though he was the richest, he became poor for the poorest to make the poorest richest. He humbles himself. Think about it. Jesus, the Son of God, in heaven where there is no sickness, there are complete and utter riches. There are heavenly beings there praising his name. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And what does Jesus do? He empties himself. The word becomes flesh. Jesus is God made visible to mankind. 
he empties himself. What we are dealing with here this morning is what theologians call the incarnation. And what we might be tempted to do is box up the incarnation, saying we can fully grasp it. It's a temptation that we might have, but we do need to realize that there are limitations to what we can understand here. Because unless you are God who did not count equality with yourself a thing to be grasped, then there are some limitations that are around this passage, around this doctrine that we are dealing with this morning. Praise God for the Holy Spirit that illuminates our hearts and our minds to walk by faith, trusting in the word of God. Jesus does not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In his earthly ministry, we do not see Jesus using his divine attributes as any gain for himself, do we? We see very clearly that Jesus still has full deity and power living as a human. He walks on water. He rebukes the storm. He multiplies a kid's lunch. However, when Jesus is faced with the temptation to gain an advantage in this world for his own earthly kingdom, Satan comes to him and says, turn this rock into bread. Jesus says, man shall not live off of bread alone. Throw yourself off of this cliff. Your angels will rescue you. Man should not tempt the Lord. When the crowd comes to him and says, we want more bread. We want to make you our king because you can satisfy all of our human needs by multiplying bread. He gives the very staggering uh, illustration of man has to eat my body and drink my blood. And everyone walks away besides the disciples. And Jesus asks them, where are you going to go? Peter says, you've got the words of life. Where will we go? Jesus does not use his power for his selfish gain. Here on earth. But not only that. We see in the most significant way possible. How God empties himself. Our passage tells us but emptied himself. How did he empty himself? By taking the form of a servant. A servant. A servant. Jesus said, I've not come to be served, but to serve. God says that to his own creation. I have not come to be served, but to serve. 
This God we're talking about, not a good and nice person, not a prophet. God himself, the ruler and creator of everything. comes to empty himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. This is the incarnation. This is Emmanuel, God with us. This is God saying, your needs more important than my needs. And so what I must do is serve you. But here is the question that we need to wrestle with right now. Why? Why does God need to serve man? Did God just wind up the proverbial clock and let us go? And say, you know what? They'll figure it out on themselves. No. God is very active in his creation. God is working all things together. And so this is the question that we need to really wrestle with. Is why does God see it necessary to empty himself? By coming in the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. of our sin. It's because of the sin that has stained this world. It's because of the sin that has stained our works. You and I need service. You know one thing that I absolutely can't stand about the Midwesterner person? I grew up here and you could actually probably call me more of a youpier, a youper. Is we don't like to be served. We want to do it on our own. You ask somebody, oh, try this. Ask somebody this week, how can I serve you? How can I bless you? You know what the response is going to probably be? Nah, I'm good. We in the Midwest, do not like to be served. And yet, what we are seeing here is that we do need to be served. And that God himself saw it so important that we need service that he came down himself to serve us. He serves us in the greatest way. You see, God, when Adam and Eve sinned, kicked them out of the garden. He said, your sin cannot be in my presence. It's a very loving act that he actually did there because if, he, if they were in his presence, they would be annihilated. It would be taken out, and so he kicks them out of the garden. But before he does so, he promises them. He promises them that he would send an offspring, an offspring that would bruise the head of the serpent and who would bruise his heel for their sake. We see from the very beginning that God himself is giving mankind a promise to serve them. And so throughout history, what we see is God establishing covenants and ways for the people of God to worship him. But time after time, as these covenants are established, what happens? We see that mankind 
cannot live up to these covenants. God gives them a law to live by, and they do not live by that law. God gives them promises, and they forget his promises. God gives them sacrifices to remind them of these promises and of these laws. And mankind continues to forget time after time again. But here's the problem, is that only a man can satisfy this righteous requirement. Only a man can pay for the penalty and satisfy the penalty of sin. But this is the other problem. Only God can handle God's wrath. So we're faced with a dilemma here. Is that we as humans fall short and cannot live up to the standard of God's perfect law. And only God can satisfy the righteous requirement of the law. And so what does he do for us? He's born in the likeness of men. He's born from a virgin into a home of poverty. God starts at the lowest of low. Empties himself of taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men. He does this because God is going to serve us. Your work and my work does not fulfill what God needs to settle our debt. We cannot pray enough, we cannot read enough scripture, you cannot attend church enough, you cannot take the Lord's Supper enough, you cannot sing enough. None of our works, good deeds, giving money, letting somebody into your house is not enough to pay back the debt that we owe. So God humbles himself. He puts on flesh. He feels pain and sickness and betrayal. Jesus was a carpenter. I think it's fair to say he dealt with slivers. So this is why this passage is so important. It's because if Jesus is just a good moral teacher, then what we're doing this morning is meaningless. But since Jesus is God, what we are doing this morning 
is eternally significant. So not to get ahead of myself before next week, this is how I would like to conclude. It's that God serves us. Think about this. God serves you, you personally, and us collectively in the greatest way. He serves us by emptying himself and being born in the likeness of men to serve you, to serve me, by paying the penalty that we should have paid. And so you may be asking, what do I do? <laughs> Nothing. Let Jesus serve you this morning. Let him serve you by doing the very thing that you cannot do. Working to please the Father. Jesus satisfies the righteous requirement of the law on your behalf. This is the greatest news that we could possibly think about this morning and for the weeks to come. Is that God himself comes down, looks like you and me, is such a plain person that as they are on their way to arrest him, Judas has to kiss him on the cheek so that way the people who are arresting him knows what he looks like. Jesus, by all means, is a very unimpressive looking person that dies for us to reconcile us back to himself. <laughs> Who else would do that for you? See, the greatest need that you have and say, I'm going to die for you so you can have that need. Jesus does. And only Jesus does. So this is my simple application this morning. Believe. Believe. When you are faced with temptation this week, believe that Jesus died for you. God himself came down and died for your sins. When you are feeling condemned this week by sin, when you are feeling like your life doesn't matter, when you are feeling like you are worthless, believe that God himself came and served you. When you are feeling lazy and not wanting to love the person who you are called to love, your neighbor, remember that Jesus loved you by serving you in the most amazing way, that God himself serves you. God became a man. <laughs> That's incredible. And so, we need to act like it's incredible and plead with God that we believe like it's incredible. Let's pray.
Father, you are worthy to be praised, God. You uh, belong, to you belongs all power and dominion and glory. And so we just ask that we would better know this marvelous mystery that you, God, showed your love for us and that yet while we were still sinners, you died for us. Please, God, we believe here. Help our unbelief. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.